perhaps in response to um, the, the liberalism that has um, been present in the West since uh, the mid-1800s, let's say, uh, there is a, a rightful tendency within our churches to be ever sure of the definitions of our faith and to, uh, to box up what we believe and to make sure we're clear on what it is uh, about the gospel that we are proclaiming. And one uh, result of this tendency might be, for example, that the Christian life, therefore, becomes very much concerned about the certain things that we believe, perhaps to the detriment of other important aspects of the Christian life. Think about if we were to do a, a, a poll of people, perhaps the people in this building, what is a key characteristic of a Christian? What is a defining characteristic? Not asking how you become a Christian, but how do you spot Christians in society? Now, I'm sure there are many good answers that you can give to that question. But I wonder how far up the list would we get if we pulled a group this big? How far up the list would the term love come in? How far up, how, how much priority do we give to love as being a defining characteristic of our Christian life. And perhaps it's in response to society's very open-ended definition of love. Uh, Love is love, the world says. Uh, Whatever you call love uh, goes as love. And perhaps in response to that, we want to batten down a little bit and say, no, we we want love to be a little bit more defined. Um, And perhaps if you think about the caricatures, for example, of uh, what do you think of when you think of a, of a pious person, someone deeply devoted to serving God in all of life? Does that person that you, that you conjure up in your mind's eye, is love a key characteristic of their life? What do you think of as Christian maturity? As you are trying to mature as a Christian, do we often replace love for characteristics like knowledge and understanding? Now, my point here this evening is not to belittle those other things. Belief is important, and what we believe about who Jesus is and what he came to do is vitally important. And we will continue preaching it from this pulpit for as long as we're able. But we ought not to let those truths about what we believe push out the truth about the requirement of our need to love one another. What I want to show you from the passage that we've read today is that love is one of the most one of the most important defining characteristics of the Christian life. Perhaps you could make a case for saying it is it is the most important characteristic of the Christian life. But that that love that defines us is not something woolly and loose and undefined like the world would describe love, but actually it's the clear and definite consequence of being born a child of God. That's what I want to see this evening, the importance of love as a defining characteristic in the Christian life. Now, John's argument follows on quite closely from what he he was saying in the verses that we looked at last week. And that's why I began the reading from chapter 2, verse 28. The heading in my NIV that comes between verse 10 and 11 suggests that the jump between these two sections is bigger than it really is. In verse uh, 8, verse 7 and 8, John has set up a a dichotomy, a, a choice between only two options. He says, either you can belong to God or you belong to the devil. And either, therefore, you live the devil's way 
or else you live God's way. And so he then comes to verse 10 and he says to the believers, look, you can tell who belongs to God and who belongs to the devil by looking at the way they live. He who does what is right belongs to God and he who does what is sinful is of the devil. Last week we were thinking about the reason for that. It's because God is righteous. And so those who are born of God will do what is righteous. But then John in verse 10 adds another test to go with it. He says you can look at what they do, but also you can look at their love. Does a person love? If he does, he's born of God. If a person does not love, he is of the devil. So according to John's arguing, love is very closely tied to this righteous life that God produces in us. In fact, you could say that love is the practical result of righteousness. And these tests become interchangeable. You can look at whether they do what is right, or another way of saying that is, do they love others? John is telling us that if God's seed is in you, or in other language, if you are united to Christ, or again, otherwise, if you have been born his child, then the inevitable consequence is that you will love. Why? Because God, uh, because John is not willing to reduce Christianity simply to an understanding of certain beliefs, things that you know, arguments that you are able to present. For John, Christianity is a sharing of, of it's a partaking in the divine nature. Uh, uh, that's Peter's words, really. But that's the, that's the idea that you find in John's letters. Your life stems from being united to God himself. And that means that whatever God is, we are. Last week we were thinking about, John was telling us about God being righteous, and therefore we are righteous. This week John is moving on a little bit. He wants us to be reminded that God is love, a statement that he will make definitely and clearly towards the end of his letter. And because of who God is, we also ought to be loving. We will be loving. You see, love is such a such an essential part of who God is. We know that not just because God has told us it in Scripture. The Bible tells us that God is loving. We know it not just because God has demonstrated it in the way that he's dealt with us. But we know it because of because of who God is. How could a trinity exist? How could three separate persons be united into one Godhead if they were not bound by love? The Godhead would simply implode if those three persons of the Trinity did not love one another. How could the Son, who had been sent to glorify the Father, how could he pray for his own glorification? And why would the Father grant that glorification if the two were not united in love? How could the Spirit be sent out into the world for the express purpose of pointing other people, not to himself, but to the Son? from whom he was sent, if love did not characterize their relationship? How could Jesus be willing to go to the cross to suffer death if he were not confident in the love that the Father had for him that he would be resurrected from the dead? Love just seeps through the whole of the Trinity. It it, it almost defines what, what that Trinity is. And yet that love that God has is not simply 
self-preservation. It's not a selfish love. It's not simply contained within himself, but it's a love that reaches out towards others. If God really is God, and for all of eternity, he has been completely satisfied, completely fulfilled in himself, he had no need of any other, he was not dependent upon a creation in order to be powerful, but he had all those attributes in and of himself, then why did he create? The only conclusion we can come to is he created to extend, to share his great love. Creation. Is a, is a reaching out of God's love, a sharing of his own love with those that he has made. He creates because he loves. The reason that the whole world sees and knows that to love another is a good thing is because God himself is a loving God. The reason love is good is because the good God is love. And for those who have been born of God, for those who have got their seed in their hearts and lives, the inevitability is that if God is love, we also will love. That has been the rule from the beginning. That has been the message from the very start, the very beginning, from in the beginning, as it were. And it's still the message today. God's people are not content with a life of righteous isolation. In fact, you could almost go as far as to say as righteousness cannot be achieved in isolation. If it were not for the fact that some Christians are forced into isolation by others. But there's no way that the Bible paints a picture of righteousness that willingly steps back from those around them. You cannot be righteous as a as a hermit, willingly separating yourself from the rest of the world. Righteousness, the righteousness of God, is it contains and results in love that shares itself with others. Many people in this society that, that we live in try and live by a philosophy of do no harm. So long as I'm doing no harm to those around me, I'm morally acceptable. That is no philosophy for a Christian to live uh, to live by. The love that you find within the Trinity is not the kind of love that lives by the philosophy of do no harm. The three persons of the Trinity are not left each to their own devices to plough their own furrow. Their love binds them together so that they're working together and achieving the same goal, working for the same glory. Similarly, God's love did not create and then abandon the creation in order that he might do it no harm. God's love binds him to creation and and makes him stick with it, even through the difficulties that come up within that creation. Love reaches out. It, It takes the initiative. It moves forward. This is the love that God has. This is the love that he is working in his people. Now, there is an alternative But it isn't pretty. The alternative is to be led by the devil instead of led by God. This is verse 12 now. To be led by the devil, you essentially follow in the footsteps of Cain, who murdered his brother. You can read about it in the very first pages of your Bible. Why did Cain murder his brother? Interestingly, it wasn't self-defense. 
It wasn't self-preservation. It wasn't even to gain something that Abel had that Cain didn't. He didn't get anything out of the murder. He didn't steal anything. Cain murdered his brother simply because his own actions were evil and his brother's actions were righteous. In other words, Cain murdered his brother because he belonged to the devil and Abel belonged to God. Satan hates God and he will do all he can to to work against God's plans and he will do all he can to work against God's people. And so you could say that when Cain murdered his brother, all he was doing was being faithful to his own master. And still today, many, many more do the same. Do not be surprised, John says, verse 13. Do not be surprised if your belonging to God causes those around you to hate you. And they will hate you not because you've hurt them, not because you've done them any wrong, not because you're an awkwardness to them, but simply because you belong to another. Now, when that happens, if you face it perhaps in your school situation, perhaps as you move house into a new neighbourhood, perhaps in a, in a job setting, it will feel like you are in a position of utmost weakness. It will hurt. It hurts to be rejected and belittled and mocked and pushed aside. And in the moment of that weakness, the temptation will be there for you to give up that which identifies you as one of God's people. The temptation will be there for you to give up loving the brothers, abandon the church, rub yourself out from that uh, from that group of people who call themselves by Jesus' name. I'm not really one of them, will be the temptation. John urges you, see things as they really are. Don't be convinced by that seeming moment of weakness. Actually, those who are loving, as weak as it might look, those who are loving are in the position of strength. Because you are the ones who have actually received life. This is verse 14. You are the ones who have passed from death to life. And those who are hating you, as strong as they might seem in that moment, they are the ones ultimately who will face death. So don't abandon the fellowship. Don't abandon your brothers who love you and who you are loving. Your master is not the devil. Your master is God. You are his child and he is making you to love just like he loves us. You display his righteousness as you love his people. Love is righteousness. But can we say any more than that? Because so far we've got this idea that love is righteousness. But if we're following the world's thinking that love is love is love, basically anything fits under that banner. Is the Bible any more specific than that? Well, yes, it is. John provides the answer. What this love actually looks like in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. In other words, this will be the love that God causes to work in you this is how we know what love is jesus christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers in john's eyes the love that jesus showed us is seen no more clearly than when we see his love in his sacrificial death on the cross it is true jesus loved us in his acts of creation 
It is true, Jesus loved us as he revealed God's word to us throughout the scriptures. It is true, Jesus loved us in the incarnation, in the teaching of the law. Jesus continues to love us still today as he stands in heaven interceding for us. But you don't see his love any more clearly than when you look at his sacrificial death on the cross. The moment when he laid down his life for us. The more we meditate on that great sacrifice of Christ, the clearer our obligations come to how we ought to love one another. When you look at the cross, you see first and foremost that that this love that God calls us to is costly. It is real, deep, costly love. How easy would it have been for Jesus to simply come and impart his teachings his wisdom, his instructions, his rules for life. How easy would it have been for for Jesus to come and and grant us healing uh, or or, or wealth or uh, power? It'd be easy, just a word he'd have to say. How much did it cost him? The author of life, the fountainhead of all that exists to come and give his own life. It cost him All that he had. The love that Christians therefore share with one another is a love that is willing to to give even at great personal cost. It's a love that doesn't that doesn't count up what benefit is going to be in it for me before it acts. It's a love that doesn't hold anything back. It's a love that is willing to give not just one commodity, but all commodities available. Time, money, opportunity. Effort, strength, emotion. The love that Jesus shows us, teaches us how to give, is a love that gives at great cost. We look at the cross, we see also that the love is is a love that strives for reconciliation. It's a love that values fellowship. The great motive of the gospel from the very beginning, from, from, from the day of Adam and Eve's fall into sin, The great motive of the gospel message has been to reconcile God and man, to bring us back into fellowship, to to cover over the shame of guilt. Jesus didn't die on the cross as a generic example of how to sacrifice. Jesus died for a purpose. Jesus died that we might be reconciled to God, that we might be at peace with God. He died for us. To buy us, to ransom us, to make us his own. When we look at the cross, we see that the love we ought to have for one another is a love that strives to be reconciled. A love that values and prizes relationship. This love doesn't hold grudges. This love doesn't turn a cold shoulder. This love is not content to remain isolated. This love is not content to let others remain isolated. This love joins together. It does not push apart. When we look at the cross, we see that love isn't passive, but it takes initiative. Jesus wasn't killed for us. John chooses his words carefully. Jesus wasn't killed. He didn't have his life taken from him. Jesus laid down his life for us. For our sakes. And who are we? Who were we 
Peter spoke to the crowd and said, you were the ones who put him to death. You called for his very crucifixion. You were baying for his blood and it was for you that he was dying. Paul says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't wait for us to come begging and asking for for a solution to our sin before he died in our place. He took the initiative. He saw the problem. He provided the solution. This is how we know what love is. When we look at the cross, we see that love doesn't wait to be asked before it acts. It doesn't wait till the problem comes falling at our own feet. Love crosses the road to meet, to meet the falling. Love is not happy to sit content in our own little castles because we aren't coming to face, face to face with the needs of others on a weekly or daily basis. Love reaches out. It goes looking for needs. Love takes the initiative. When we look at the cross, we see that love seeks its glory from the Father. Yes, it's true that Jesus gave his life at great cost, but it would be foolish to say that he did it for no benefit of his own. Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. He knew the glory that was coming to him. But he didn't seek that glory in the moment. He didn't seek that glory from the ones who were seeking to put him to death. He didn't exalt himself by saving himself from the cross. He entrusted his glory to the Father. He knew that his path to glory was a a path that went through suffering. He was no Spartacus going through death with a shout that brought him glory in that moment. He went through a shameful death. Because he was seeking to please God, not man. When we look at the cross, we see that our love for our brothers is not a love that exalts ourselves. It's not a love that that performs in front of others for the praise of man. It's a love that serves quietly, knowing that God who sees all will reward those who serve him in this way. And the list could go on and on. When you look at the cross, you see that Jesus loves those who are different and separated from him. You see Jesus loving those who are even his enemies. You see it's a love that perseveres even through the most difficult moments. You see it's a love with a purpose and an act and a reason. You see it's a love that is that is both filled with heartfelt emotion and yet also acted out in practical reality. And the more we meditate on the death of Jesus on the cross, we more the more we see the completeness of what love really is that we are called to show to one another. Jesus' love is our daily working example of what it means to love another. We don't go around with it with this woolly, vague notion of uh, love is love. So long as you call it love, so long as it feels like love, it must be love. Now this is love. The example of Jesus giving his own life for our sakes. It has nothing of the vagueness that we get in the sayings of the world. And yet, it remains so completely broad that there is no loophole for us to sneak out of. This love is all-encompassing. Those who know God, who have been born of God, those who remain in him, will show this type of love to one another. And that's how we know who belongs to God. And who doesn't?
do they love? Do they love their brothers? Do they love those in the church? Those within God's family? The question is, how on earth is it possible for any of us to achieve this standard of love? How can we ever live up to such a high bar that Jesus has set for us? It seems so far beyond what we're typically able of experiencing, let alone performing. Love depends upon life, John would have us know. This love that God is calling us to is not something that we first perform in order to become a child of God. But actually, this love depends on us already having been made a child of God. Love depends upon life. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. That's what happens first. We passed from death to life. We know that's happened because we love our brothers. The love comes next. How then do we get that life? It's staring us in the face. Verse 16. Jesus laid down his life so that you might receive life. Jesus shared in our death so that you might share in his life. You see, if we want to be those who are able to live out this love, to to, to perform real life examples of this same love that Jesus has shown to us, we first need to be those people who have been recipients of that love. It's no good trying to do it out of our own sense of duty or our own will to please or perform to others. We need to first make sure that Jesus' example of love is actually so much more than merely an example to us. It needs to be our source of life. Have you repented and are you believing? Have you had your life joined to him? Are you united to Christ in the way that John would describe? Have you received the life that Jesus offers? You know, it's said that you cannot learn a language without hearing it spoken. It's simply impossible for your brain to to grasp the language unless you hear it spoken. The illustration falls down a little bit because you can speak the language to yourself. As long as you know how to sound out the words, you can hear it yourself. But in a similar way, you cannot perform these acts of love unless you've first heard them, experienced them, seen them, performed for you on your behalf. You cannot love others like Jesus loved unless you have first been loved by Jesus himself. And when you have, you will find that Jesus works that same love through his life, working in you so that you bear fruit that mimics the vine to which you are joined. Such is the love that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. Such is the love that we are called to show to one another, our brothers and sisters within God's family.